The Wings Over New Zealand show is brought to you in association with the Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum, New Zealand's number one aviation discussion forum online. There you'll find discussion on all aspects of New Zealand aviation, from history to current affairs and thousands of photos covering the Royal New Zealand Air Force, airlines, general aviation, warbird restorations, air show news, sport aviation, home building, gliding, aviation media and much, much more. You'll be in good company with other aviation enthusiasts, including pilots, engineers, warbird owners and restorers, historians and authors, modelers, aviation photographers and many others. Sign up to the Wings Over New Zealand community now. It's free and easy. Just Google Wings Over New Zealand and you'll find the forum. This is Extended, the ETOPS Aviation Podcast. Here's Peter Johnson. We're in front of the Merlin. Can you tell us a little bit about the aircraft? What aircraft did you fly before? Uh, Suhoi 22. Right, okay. That's quite an interesting aircraft. Mm -hmm. What was that like to fly? Faster. Yeah. (laughs) Gareth Stringer. Make no bones about it. This is still a very capable aircraft. The cockpit's very cramped. You've got leg restraints on. You're sat on a seat that's got explosives in it. Tim Robinson. Also the A400M, got to go inside and uh, have a poke around with. Just uh, taking me on the trip of our lifetime in a F-18F Super Hornet. Aviation-extended.co.uk And remember, there's no E at the beginning of Extended. Extended! The Wings Over New Zealand show would like to acknowledge the great support it's had from Fly DC3. You can fly back in time with Fly DC3 from Ardmore Airport, charter the DC3 Dakota and fly into the past. It's an experience you'll never forget. Fly DC3. Go to www.flydc3.co.nz Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show. Played by the Central Band of the Royal Air Force, the Royal Air Force March Pass.
Good morning, everyone. Distinguished veterans, and if there is such a thing as the first amongst equal, the lady who has just arrived is very distinguished. Honoured guests, families of those who served, ladies and gentlemen, I would like to call upon Ron Mayhill, President of the New Zealand Bomber Command Association, to welcome you here today. Ron. Distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen, welcome. Welcome to the Bomber Command Commemoration Service, which we hold each year close to the Queen's birthday weekend in this Hall of Memories of the Auckland War Memorial Museum. It's important that we do remember that our beautiful museum is a war memorial. There are so many people I'd like to thank for, who did the organisation, but Jonathan Pote, our Master of Ceremonies, was a person who's worked for three months doing all the organisation. He's done a wonderful job, and we do appreciate it. Today, I'd like to talk about the Air Forces Memorial in Runnymede, sited on a steep wooded hill 30 kilometres west of London, overlooking the marshlands and wet meadows of the River Thames, and down below are the magma fields where King John was forced to sign the Magna Carta 800 years ago. The imposing entrance to the memorial opens onto an expanse of garden and lawn, which features the remembrance stone, the focus for all our ceremonies there. The overall design symbolises a wartime airfield dominated by the control tower, a tower stopped by statues of victory, justice and courage. Down below is a vaulted shrine for private contemplation. On the two wings are elegant and graceful cloisters. The Air Forces Memorial, unveiled by the Queen in 1953, is dedicated to the 20,456 airmen who lost their lives but have no known grave. These include so many of Bomber Command, 
who were reported missing. FTR failed to return on our operation boards. Their last resting place, probably the chilly depths of the North Sea. To walk slowly past the panels of names, 1939 to 1945, is a very moving and humbling experience. On finding a long forgotten or, or remembered comrade, many half forgotten memories come flooding back. The cloister ceilings show all the squadron crests while the outside walls, through narrow slits, show glimpses of distant wetlands. The two long cloisters meet at two large picture windows, one towards Royal Windsor and the other towards Heathrow Airport and beyond to London. There is a strange feeling of timeless space, punctuated by the faintest sound and then a tiny speck which slowly grows as an approaching aircraft passes overhead and slowly fades away to be followed by another and yet another poignant reminders of so many lost comrades. Ruddy Mead Air Force Memorial honours all air forces that contributed to the RAF in World War II. A fitting tribute to the 2,456 who died but have no known grave. They will always be remembered. Thank you, Ron. We welcome our veterans whose colleagues we remember today members of the New Zealand Defence Forces, of the Royal Air Force and the Canadian Armed Forces. And in particular, Wing Commander Joanne Beale of the RNZAF, Master Air Crew Andrew Burrows of the Royal Air Force, and Major Wes Cromwell representing the Canadian High Commission and the Canadian Armed Forces. His Excellency Ambassador Rob Zagman, Ambassador representing the Kingdom of the Netherlands, and Sake Hitman, his consul in the area. The Honorary Consul of Poland, Bogusław Nowak. Squadron Leader Brett Marshall of the Royal New Zealand Air Force Museum. And Pat Johnson, 
representing the Return Services, New Zealand Return Services Association. And in my first big boob of the day, Mayor Goff, who I did not know was coming until a few moments ago, but I'm delighted to welcome. Many veterans have sent their heartfelt apologies, but simply cannot attend. Somebody has left hospital today to attend. Others have traveled a long way. They and their families have been sent the order of service that you have, and nearly 100 of them will be taking part in the service, albeit in many parts of New Zealand and countries across the world. I would now like to call upon Chaplain Group Captain Anse Hawes, Principal Defence Chaplain, and Chaplain Ken Diakaman of the Royal New Zealand Air Force to conduct the service. Group Captain Hawes. Thank you, Jonathan. Um, good morning uh, to you all, and may I say uh, thank you for taking time out in your busy lives to come pay honour, respect to um, a brave group of men and women, families, uh, who'd done so much for our freedoms. I was, uh, <clears throat> I went to Runnymede with Ron some five years ago and uh, the poignancy of that day is something I will certainly never ever forget. It was just an amazing place. This morning, in the presence of God, who is our strength and refuge, we come to remember those who served and died in Bomber Command during World War II. We give thanks to him for those who came together from the Commonwealth, Europe and the UK to serve a common purpose. We remember with thanksgiving the men and women who served Bomber Command, leaving homes and family to which so many of them were to never return. Many of them laid down their lives in the cause of justice and peace. By their costly and sacrificial endeavours, peace was attained. We remember those who still bear scars of conflict in body, mind and spirit and we pray for bereaved families and friends. This morning we pray for peace. Peace between the nations of Europe since the ending of World War II and for the extension of unity, concord and understanding across the continent. We pray that in these tense times this peace may last and bring hope and what I say vision to the entire world. We pray too for those who work for peace. And we do so rejoicing in the power and grace of Christ who is the Prince of Peace. That swords can be beaten into plowshares. And old and bitter enemies can yield up their hatred and find enduring fellowship. So we say, be with us this morning loving Father. That we may honour your name and renew ourselves to your glory and the extension of your kingdom. Amen. 
I invite my fellow chaplain, Chaplain Ken Diekma, to bring the first reading. Today's first reading is from the book of Isaiah, chapter, 15, chapter 25, verses 1 to 9. Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you and praise your name. For in perfect faithfulness, you have done wonderful things, things planned long ago. You have made the city a heap of rubble, the fortified town a ruin, the foreigner's stronghold a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will honor you. Cities of ruthless nations will revere you. You have been a refuge for the poor, a refuge for the needy in their distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm driving against a wall and like the heat of the desert. You silence the uproar of foreigners as heat is reduced by the shadow of a cloud, so the song of the ruthless is stilled. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations, he will swallow up death forever. The Sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. In that day, they will say, Surely this is our God. We trusted in him, and he saved us. This is the Lord we trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. Our second reading is from the New Testament, the letter to the Romans, chapter 8, verses 31 to 39. It's titled, More Than Conquerors. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave us up for us all, how will he not also along with him, graciously give us all things. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, or hardship, persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your, faith, uh, sorry, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord.
I will lead us in a prayer. And in the bold sections, if you're willing, please say it together. In peace, let us pray to the Lord. We pray for the leaders of the nations, that you may guide them in the ways of peace, justice, and truth. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. We pray for those who serve in the armed forces of our nation, that they may have discipline and discernment, courage and compassion. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. We pray for our enemies and those who wish us harm, that you may turn the hearts of all to kindness and fellowship and friendship. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. We pray for the wounded and the captive, the grieving and the lost, that in all their trials they may know your love and support. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Most holy God and Father, hear our prayers for all those who strive for peace and all who yearn for justice. Help us, who today remember the cost of war, to work for a better tomorrow. And as we commend to you lives lost in terror and conflict, bring us all in the end to the peace of your, of your presence through Christ our Lord. Amen. Now gathering our prayers and remembrance into one, let us pray with confidence as our Savior has taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Thank you. Distinguished veterans, Your Excellency, Mayor Goff, ladies and gentlemen, I would like to talk about those who served. RAF Bomber Command existed for about three decades, between 1938 and 1936 and 1938. Today, of course, we focus on the Second World War. But that is not to say it is the only period. At the beginning, Bomber Command had very poor technology, and it was only the personal skills, dedication, and bravery of the crews that allowed anything to be achieved. Towards the end of Bomber Command, the technology was fearsome, but the human qualities were still required. The V-bombers would have taken off from England towards Russia, not knowing whether England would be there when they came back, but that was inconsequential because they did not have the fuel to get back. It was a one-way mission, followed by a flight of their own choice if they managed to reach the target. The human factor was unchanged. We are very privileged to have some distinguished veterans here. And they look wonderful people. Alert, 
well-dressed, bemedaled. But they are but 2%, roughly, of those who survived the war. Worldwide, I estimate, two to 3,000 are left. So what are the other 120,000? Half of them were killed. Many continue to suffer post-war, not just from physical injuries, but from mental scars as well. And in many unfortunate cases, they were unable to communicate and rarely talked about their experiences. Their marriages were difficult, their depression, their mental health was difficult, and many died early, some by their own hand. Who were these people before they joined up? One thing is certain, they were the cream of their generation. Many of them, at the beginning, were already well established into careers. Careers in commerce, industry, the professions. And they left those to go to war. Others had a very lowly position in life farm laborers, factory workers, and really they had little chance of great achievement in life until the Second World War broke down the invisible but very real barriers of social and educational achievement and allowed them to show their full potential. The result being, of course, that those who survived were the leaders of the post-war world. Why did they do it? Well, they tend to say that it was a chance to travel, maybe to learn to fly. Few people had flown in those days. But really, you do not have to dig too far to find altruism. As has been said before, the true soldier fights not because he hates what is in front of him, but he loves what, what is behind him. Was it really dangerous? Well, sitting on five or six tons of high explosive with the fuses fitted, with eight tons of petrol around you, trying to get airborne in an aircraft that had been built as quickly as possible from a runway that had been made as small as possible and on the weather that the day dished up was just the start and many did not manage even to achieve that they died at their home airfields once they were airborne they had to face the weather for six, eight, even ten hours and then find their way home again In between, they had to face the might of the German defences. A tour was 30 operations, theoretically, and it took three to five months. So it's June. If you had started in January, you would just about be finishing a period spent in what closely approximates to hell.
if you were just started you would be there till Christmas it's a long time to be under unbelievable pressure on a really bad day a squadron might lose five or six aircraft fortunately it was rare but it happened so afterwards the accommodation would be half empty the RAF police would be there very quickly and all belongings and traces of those who had failed to return would disappear and new faces would appear perhaps even to sleep in a bed that had been made by somebody who was now dead they just kept going it's well known that many aircraft survived a hundred operations about three dozen but very very few aircrew did I estimate half a dozen one person achieving the unbelievable figure of 140 yes it was dangerous what about their age the average age was 21 and remember remember of course that was after two years of training so once the pool of available people had been used up pre-war and early war almost all were school leavers but their ages varied most were 19 to 26 but some were much younger and some were much older Flight Sergeant Edward James Wright of the Royal Canadian Air Force is believed to have been the youngest person killed on active service he was 17 some could have avoided the dangerous jobs Sergeant Evel was around 19 when he was killed he had had difficulty during training because people took exception to his father Air Chief Marshal Evel senior air staff officer of fighter command and yet this teenager went to the front Thomas Dobney falsified his birth certificate and he managed to join at the unbelievable age of 14 he was a farm chap and obviously well built he soloed the day after his 15th birthday and became operational on twin-engine Whitley's during the early part of the war he had achieved 20 operations over enemy territory when he began to feel he was putting older people his crew at an unreasonable risk and he requested a transfer to single-seat aircraft but then a chance photograph appeared in the national press and his father saw it and at last discovered what his son was up to Thomas Dobney did, ne did not get his transfer to single-seat aircraft he got an immediate discharge but with a piece of paper that said it was solely his age and would he please be back the day he was old enough and he was he was allowed incidentally to wear his wings whilst out temporarily out of the Air Force they had been awarded they were genuine 
He rejoined the stream and would have flown operationally but for a crash in training and eventually flew with the King's Flight, a 14-year-old. Many were much older. Several aircrew had served in the First World War and served again in the second, a minimum of 21 years later. Wing Commander Wheeler was MC and Bar, DFC and Bar, and the Order of St. Stanislaus when he was killed aged 46. He was a veteran pilot from the First World War, he was a pilot in the Second World War, and before he was 20 he had been awarded the MC and Bar. Sir Arnold Talbot Wilson was 56 and serving with number 75 New Zealand Squadron on Wellingtons when he died at the time of Dunkirk. He was the third sitting member of Parliament to die in the Air Force. And he had been in the First World War, but in India, where he became a Lieutenant Colonel. And as a Member of Parliament, had met both Hitler and Mussolini, personally. But he said, I have no desire to, to shelter myself and live in safety behind the ramparts of the bodies of millions of young men. He was true to his word and died. William Wedgwood Ben, Viscount Stansgate, was another pilot from the First World War who rejoined in the Second World War as a pilot officer, the lowest commissioned rank, although he survived and was rapidly promoted not for him solely staff work. He trained as an air gunner and at the age of 67 flew several operational missions. He would have carried on but for the fact that word got beyond his station where he had managed to browbeat the station commander, higher up the command chain and he was firmly grounded. His son was killed in a mosquito. Perhaps it was a bit of a matter of destiny. Every person who joined the RAF as aircrew and the other air forces was a volunteer. Yes, conscription might have followed had they not done so, but they were a volunteer when they threw themselves like a log of wood into a fast-flowing torrent. Once in there, they had no control over their future. They would do what they were told, they would specialise as they were told, they would end up where they were told. And many of them, the vast majority, did so in Bomber Command. Those of Coastal Command trained with Bomber Command until the very last moment, 
and then were sidelined for additional navigational work before they flew a lonely war over the sea. Which, although it perhaps lacked the drama of Germany, was just as dangerous a place. What countries? As I have perhaps alluded, I think Great Britain was two countries. The thought that a peer of the realm could be a crew member and taking orders from somebody who was previously a factory worker or a farm labourer, and that happened, shows that there were two very different groups of people. Their nationalities were British, Irish, Canadian, Australian, New Zealand, South African, United States of America, Poland, Czechoslovakia, France, Belgium, Denmark, Holland, Norway, India and Ceylon, and the West Indies. Nearly two dozen nations. Of those, clearly the British provided the greatest number, but in terms of percentages, no. Canada, Australia, New Zealand provided men, young men, in percentages compared to their population that matched or more than matched the mother country. South Africa had very few, around a dozen but for a very good reason. The South African Air Force was quite considerable and fully occupied in North Africa and the Middle East. And there, the young men from South Africa were bomber command in all but name, and more than doing their bit. They may have sent few, but they sent the best. Captain Edwin Swales was an experienced pilot when he was designated as the master bomber for a raid on Leipzig. Making one run across the target is fearsome enough. The master bomber has to arrive almost first, assess the situation, direct the aircraft by VHF radio, and then continue to circle and redirect the aircraft as required to get the maximum efficiency. Edwin Swales' aircraft was badly hit and burning, but he stayed doing his job. Only when the bombing was effectively complete did he make for the nearest Allied territory. His crew survived. He did not but one of the most well-deserved Victoria Crosses was awarded. There were roughly 125 squadrons in Bomber Command, of whom a surprising 25% had a nationality attached to their name. Canada led by far and even provided a bomber group, but the others did more than their 
bit. There were Polish squadrons, Australian squadrons, New Zealand squadrons, and others in the commands. How did they get there? Well, for many, there was an established route. The Americans could go to Canada and join the Canadian Air Force before Pearl Harbor. The Irish could catch a boat to England and the fact that their country was not at war with Germany was conveniently overlooked by the recruiting team and many of them served. Those from Czechoslovakia had something of a chance to leave home after their country accepted German occupation, including the one person who fought a three-day single-handed war against the Luftwaffe. But the Poles resisted. They were attacked by both the Germans and the Russians, and against this impossible onslaught, defended their country with supreme valour and skill before many of them began making their way first to France where they could still fight and then to England. Apart from being trained airmen they brought something with them that nobody else had. Combat experience. They had fought the Germans in the Second World War and were invaluable. Those from Norway, perhaps, would have to sail the North Sea. That's fairly perilous, even with aircraft, even without aircraft out there intent on destroying your boat. Perhaps the most surprising are two German nationals who had both come to England, assumed false names, again confused the recruiters, and served in bomber command. Both were shot down. One of them became such a thorn in the German's side as a prisoner of war that he was awarded the military cross post-war. And one of them parachuted down near his home where he unbelievably coolly went home to get a change of clothes before he started to evade, which he did successfully. Let us not forget also that during the accepted period of the Battle of Britain, in which 400 fighter command pilots and gunners died, in the same period, 718 members of Bomber Command died, and 280 of Coastal Command doing the forgotten other half of the Battle of Britain, namely bombing the invasion barges and other targets in occupied Europe. Nor as we forget the roughly 1,500 Royal Air Force ground crew who died in service. 91 of them were women. One of them was extracted from the RAF and joined the Special Operations Executive. She is here 
today. Was there ever such a group gathered together so closely to fight a shared threat? I doubt it. Was it worth it? Between 1940 and 1944, Bomber Command and the United States Army Air Force were the only ways of taking the war home to Germany. That was not merely a matter of spite or revenge. It kept a huge number of able-bodied men defending the Reich and indeed using up a significant proportion of the munitions that the industry could provide. So yes, it was worth it. Was it appreciated? I quote, intelligent tactics as well as the discipline and, and bravery of the crews has been remarkable. We had severe problems trying to defend Germany from the Royal Air Force. Thus said Adolf Gallant, General de Flieger of the Luftwaffe. Thank you. I now call upon Rob Zagman. His Excellency Rob Zarkman, the Ambassador of the Kingdom of Netherlands, to speak. Distinguished veterans, dear families of veterans, Mr. Mayhill, Your Worship, ladies and gentlemen, each year on 5 May, the Netherlands celebrates the fact that it was liberated from Nazi occupation and tyranny. The day before, 4 May, is Remembrance Day. On that day, we commemorate all those soldiers and civilians who have been killed or murdered in the Kingdom of the Netherlands or elsewhere in the world in war situations or during peacekeeping operations since the outbreak of the Second World War. Here in Auckland, one such commemoration is taking place annually in Parnell Rose Gardens at the Dutch War Memorial. Remembering is giving life to the memory of those who gave their today for our tomorrow. But in remembering, we also look to the future. How can the generation of today ensure that its tomorrow will be free of war, hatred, and oppression? The Reverend Horse spoke about the many who during the Second World War laid down their lives in the cause of justice, freedom, and peace in Europe. Is this cause under threat again? There is uncertainty in my continent. And unity, conquered, and understanding that the Reverend referred to seem under pressure. Under these circumstances, it is all the more important that we remember and that we tell the stories and that we pass those stories on. So what do the people in the Netherlands know of the contribution of New Zealand to their liberation from tyranny and oppression? The older generation certainly remembers cheering on the mighty airplanes flying over the Netherlands on their way to bomb Nazi Germany. And of course they remember Operation Mana, 
they were grateful for this bread from heaven during the winter, the hunger winter in the Netherlands and the disastrous famine that threatened a large part of the Dutch population. My late father, who was 18 at the time, was one of those older people who very well remember what happened then. A photo taken in May 1945 from one of the planes showed the words many thanks spelled out in tulips. But with a few exceptions, those Dutch people did not know who manned the bombers they were cheering on to Germany, and they were unaware that Kiwi airmen were involved in Operation Mana as well, making 126 flights between 29 April and 7 May. To the Dutch, these brave crewmen were simply the liberators, soldiers of the great alliance of free nations fighting to deliver them from, free, from cruel occupation and bringing them succor in a time of deadly famine. Today, much more is known in the Netherlands about the contribution of New Zealand to the liberation of our country and the awful price it paid for that. A total of 256 of your airmen, your brothers in arms, are buried in Dutch soil. Their graves are in cemeteries all around the country. Sometimes there are a dozen in the same cemetery. Sometimes it is one solitary grave. The fact that we do know more is due in particular to the effort of many unknown but dedicated Dutch volunteers. Allow me to give you three examples of their labor of love. And I will start in Zealand, the province in the southwest of my country after which your country was named. On 12 May 1944, a Lancaster bomber crashed in Zealand near the village of Krabbendijke. All crew members perished, among them two Kiwis. Navigator James Barton and pilot Colin Marriott, who had guided the stricken plane away from the village. In memory of the crew members, a monument was erected after the war. One Mr. Johan Verhagen of Krabbendijke, who was four years old at the time of the crash, later devoted much of his time to the memory of the liberators, gathering records of wartime crashes, visiting schools in this area to educate children about the sacrifices that had been made, and helping maintain the memorial. He also sought out the relatives of those who were killed and hosted them on visits to the Netherlands. Mr. Verhagen's efforts to interest the younger generation have met with success. In 2011, Calvin College, a high school in Krabbendijke, adopted the monument and since then has been organizing commemorations. The students are actively involved in the preparations and are laying wreaths and reading self-composed poems. In March 2010, the New Zealand ambassador to the Netherlands delivered a letter from Prime Minister John Key to Mr. Verhagen, thanking him for his dedication to the memory of New Zealand's war dead. My second example, example is from the other side of my country, from the province of Friesland in the north. A Frisian couple of my generation, Rinze and Jetske de Vries, maintain an English language website called New Zealand War Graves in the Netherlands. 
It was officially launched on Anzac Day 2012 and is dedicated to all airmen of the Royal New Zealand Air Force who gave their lives for our freedom. Rinz and Jetske are in the process of photographing all RNZAF graves in the Netherlands, scattered across 85 cemeteries, and publishing these photos on their website. Each photo is accompanied by a short story about a person buried there and the circumstances of his death. My final example is that of a man whom some of you may have met or have heard of. His name is Peter Den Tech, and he lives in the central area of the Netherlands. Peter's objective is to strengthen awareness among the people in this region of the air war over the Netherlands and the dedication and sacrifice of Allied air crews. He is also developing educational programs for 11 and 12 year olds on this subject. And finally, he is looking to connect with the families of those who fell. Peter's most recent project is a permanent tribute to seven Allied airmen who died in five different crashes in the general neighborhood of his village. This tribute consists of a memorial route connecting the locations of the crashes, each location with a memorial board, and the second part of this tribute, a small museum. On 10 May of this year, the museum was opened by Professor Peter van Vollenhoven, the uncle of King Willem-Alexander of the Netherlands. And the next day, the memorial route was opened by 57 relatives of the victims, including 26 from New Zealand. Flight Lieutenant Jack Lunn from Alexandra was one of the seven airmen who died, and his sister Mara Barrett unveiled his memorial board, and his family donated Jack's uniform jacket to the museum. The experience of this project, and in particular the encounter with the relatives of the airmen, moved Peter to start organizing an exhibition in 2018 about the 436 New Zealand airmen who were shot down over Dutch territory. He hopes to do this in cooperation with the New Zealand Bomber Command Association and the RNZAF. Dear veterans, these are but three examples of how Dutch people honor the Kiwi Airmen of Bomber Command. Your story and that of your fallen friends is being passed on to younger generations. And the gratitude of the Dutch people is keeping the memory of James Barton, Colin Marriott, Jack Flynn, and all the others alive. We do remember you and we will remember them. Thank you, Your Excellency. I now call upon Master Air Crew Andrew Burrows to speak about those who still serve. Andrew. Mr. Mayhill, veterans, Mr. Mayor, honoured guests, good morning. The people who have spoken before me have spoken more eloquently and knowledgeably than I ever can about Bomber Command in World War II. What I would like to speak about is these gentlemen and their colleagues and what they mean to me and my fellow military aircrew. The exploits of fighter, bomber and coastal command during World War II are the stuff of legend and no doubt initially fuelled our drive to become aircrew. 
As we trained, we came to understand what it takes to fly military operations and be capable aircrew. We also discovered that it is the resolve to work for your crewmates and not let them down that drives us. This is an ethos that I, knew, I know we share with the crews of Bomber Command. And whilst the tornado and the typhoon might be the operational successes to the Wellington and the Lancaster, it is aircraft like the Nimrod and the Orion that have carried the spirit and the camaraderie of the multi-crew environment, and it is this which connects us most profoundly to the crews of Bomber and Coastal Command. It has been said on several occasions that when aircrew of today get together with veterans, it seems as if the years fall away and we are just the same. Just aircrew with similar experiences and a sense of humour. I say similar, but although we have lost friends to both peacetime and operational tragedies, we have not had to face the horror and the attrition of total war. When we talk to veterans about this, we are often unsure if we could display the courage they did and the tenacity to complete the missions night after night. The reply often given is truly humbling. Of course you could, you're just like us. This is the fourth time I have been to this memorial and each year people from many different countries come together to remember Bomber Command and the alliance that defeated the Nazis. That I am here today representing 5 Squadron and the UK Defence Advisor in the fifth year of my exchange tour with 5 Squadron speaks to our respect for that alliance. An alliance made and forged in part by the very men of Bomber Command that we have come to remember and honour today. This alliance formed in some of the most brutal conflict of World War II remains as strong now as it was over 70 years ago. The sacrifices that you made are not forgotten and we are here today because of the crew's loyalty to their beliefs, to each other and their comrades during World War II as part of Bomber Command. Thank you. Thank you, Andrew. I now call upon Ron Mayhill, President of the New Zealand Bomber Command Association, to lay the first wreath. And now the wreaths will follow in random order, which mimics the way it was during the war. To be killed was not an indication that you were any less sufficient than the others. It was sheer fate. His Excellency Hansake Hitman for the Kingdom of the Netherlands. Bogusław Nowak, Honorary Consul of the Republic of Poland. Wing Commander Joanne Beald of the Royal New Zealand Air Force. Master Air Crew Andrew Burrows of the British High Commission and the Royal Air Force. Pat Johnson, the Area President of the New Zealand Returned and Services Association. Squadron Leader Wes Cromwell of the Royal Canadian Air Force. That concludes the laying of the wreaths. I now call upon the Reverend Anthony Hawes and Chaplain Ken Diakiman to continue.
Thank you, Jonathan. I have a um, few words of reflection to bring, but I'll, I'll keep it short, don't worry. Um, as I alluded to earlier, I had the privilege of going to the UK to attend the uh, opening or the unveiling of the Bomber Command Memorial in 2012. A trip um, that I counted then and count even more now, a huge privilege. And one of the uh, great things that happened for me on that trip was I, I heard a lot of stories. And I'll just tell you one, perhaps to lighten the load, uh, lighten the uh, atmosphere a little. Uh, as part of the trip, we, we went up into the area around Cambridge to where 75 Squadron was stationed. And uh, we went in the bus to where the airfield used to be. Um, now no longer an airfield, there were buildings there, but we went to that location. And I was sitting next to one of the old boys, and uh, he says, Here, Padre, he says, I'll tell you a story. And he told us how when the Lancasters would line up to take off and the wind was blowing a certain way, they'd have to go that way around the airfield and there were some houses at the end of the airfield and they'd line up and wait their turn to take off and they were lined up one time and he, this guy was Talian Charlie, a rear gunner and uh, he, he, they were just standing still waiting their turn to take off this time and uh, an old bloke jumps over the fence from the back of one of the houses and runs across the airfield and taps on his perspex thing and there's a little hatch there and he opens the hatch and the old boy reaches up and he chucks two bricks in to the rear there and he says, eh, drop them on them, they're bastards from me and mum. <laughs> True story. When I returned from that trip, probably to my shame, I should have done it before I went. When I returned, I, I was uh, uh, certainly interested enough to read the book Night After Night that described the uh, Bomber Command and the, the, um, the men of Bomber Command. And as I um, read on through this book, time and time again, I was, I was just amazed at the courage, absolute courage and determination shown by those aircrew and the, the pilots, for, they would hold those bombers on target as they went in to, to lay, lay their bombs uh, against incredible opposition. Um, it just amazed me. I think of the funeral of Don Whitehead, which I took not that long ago. Don Whitehead won the Distinguished Flying Medal in World War II. And part of his citation said, he showed outstanding determination and devotion to duty. Don would be the first to say he wasn't the only one, of course. Every one of them did that. I think of uh, Lloyd Trigg, VC, uh, New Zealander, who flew an unfamiliar liberator on a patrol across uh, the Atlantic and uh, on coming across a surface U-boat, uh, attacked that U-boat and lined it up and, and held on, on his line to bomb that U-boat, even though he was presenting a, a perfect target to their machine gunners. And yes, they were hit, and yes, he was killed and they did crash. But um, the, the way he just, just stayed on post, the courage, determination, of that man, his crew, to save, what, 
tens and tens of thousands of potential tons of shipping that they, the damage that you you both could have done. And of course, as a, a chaplain, I, my mind goes back further to my supreme boss, Jesus Christ, and the, the courage he showed in going to a cross, knowing what was before him. And the question occurred to me as I was thinking about today and these, these people was, what do they all have in common? What do they, qualities do they share? And the words that come to mind for me were courage, determination and discipline. They were disciplined and they disciplined themselves to do what they had to do. They showed courage, determination and discipline in the face of death. And friends, so must we because we are all mortal. Every person of talked of this morning can make along with the Apostle Paul's adopted son Timothy can make that great statement I have fought the good fight I have finished the race I wonder could they also say completing the trifecta I have kept the faith I certainly hope so because faith is the basis of that second reading which I read this morning, that wonderful statement, the assurance that nothing shall separate us from the love of God as we trust in God and the work of his Son. And those words are so powerful, so comforting, so hopeful that nothing can separate us from the love of God as we trust in his love and the work of his Son. So my call, my encouragement this morning to each and every one of us is that we freshly determine to be able to say those words with the Apostle Timothy. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Amen. May it be so for each of us. And we now have an opportunity to respond to the stories, to the encouragement, and the inspiration that's been given to us this morning. This is our act of commitment. Let us pledge ourselves anew to the service of God and our fellow men and women, that we may help, encourage, and comfort others, and support those working for the relief of the needy and for the peace and welfare of the nations. And if you're willing, say together with me, Lord God, our Father, we pledge ourselves to serve you and all mankind in the cause of peace, for the relief of want and suffering, and for the praise of your name. Guide us by your Spirit. Give us wisdom. Give us courage. Give us hope. And keep us faithful now and always. Amen. Thank you, Chaplain Ken. One of the turning points of the Second World War 
was when the British and Indian Army soldiers stopped the apparently unstoppable onslaught of the Imperial Japanese forces at Kohima and Impal on the borders of India and Burma. Like the men of New Zealand, Australia and other nations of Bomber Command, they were far from their home and aware they probably would not return there. Many died, but they prevailed, just as did those from this country and others in Bomber Command. So I feel the Kohima epitaph is a fitting line for today. When you go home, tell them of us and say, for your tomorrow, we gave our today. And I now call upon Pat Johnson of the New Zealand Return and Services Association. Thank you. Good morning, everybody. They shall never die. The whole wide world is their sepulchre. Their epitaph is written in the hearts of all mankind and wherever there is talk of noble deeds, their names will be held in grateful remembrance. They shall grow not old as we that are left grow old. Age shall not weary them, nor the years condemn. At the going down of the sun and in the morning, we shall remember them. lest we forget. Thank you, Pat.
We are most privileged to have with us today able musician Rebecca Nelson, Royal New Zealand Navy Volunteer Reserve, to lead us in the national anthem. To the living, grace. To the departed, rest. The church, the queen, the commonwealth, and all people, peace and concord. And to us and all his servants, life everlasting. And the blessing of God Almighty, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, come down and be upon you and remain with you always. Amen. Please be seated. Those who wish can now lay a poppy at the catafalque. There are spare poppies here.
please everyone else who would like to do so. Thank you all for attending. That concludes the ceremony. I'm afraid we've been unable to provide refreshments on the spot as in previous years, but an area has been set aside in the cafe in the atrium where you may purchase whatever you like and sit as a group to intermingle and share some fellowship. Thank you all. <laughs>